Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. Uh, it is the podcast that translates Donald Trump. Uh, we take an honest look at Donald Trump, the current administration, discuss the threats to America, particularly the existential threats. Boy, uh, we are talking here the day after the State of the Union, Claude, and he uh, mm-hmm. talked about a number of those threats, and we will get into that. Um, we'll uh, mention some of the points he made and go over some of it with our two guests, uh, Tom Jocelyn and Byron York. Uh, Byron York, of course, is a columnist at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. We'll get his take on the speech. Tom Jocelyn, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, senior editor at the Long War Journal. The president talked about Iran and Afghanistan. He's talked a lot about the Taliban, right. possible peace in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. He starts with the Taliban. A lot of us react with, I don't know about that, but We'll, we'll see what Jocelyn says about that. Uh, we'll dive deep into that and then the whole Syria question. Uh, let me let me discuss a few things on my mind. Claude, we uh, we put up on Facebook and Twitter the two uh, pieces I ran yes. uh, this uh, weekend on foxnews.com. Delighted that one of them was the most read. It was about the Democrats' sharp left turn. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that here in a second. First one was about Ralph Northam. And uh, in it, I said, I wrote this Saturday, last Saturday, day before the Super Bowl. I said he would be gone by uh, the time the Super Bowl concluded, uh, I was right. He's gone. He just doesn't know it. He just doesn't know yeah. it yet. Everyone else knows it. He, he's right. I, came, I went on Fox the next day, and, and I, I said, well, what do you mean, gone? He's not gone. I said, not to be grisly, but there's a scene in Hamlet, the gravedigger scene, where um, Hamlet is holding Yorick's skull. They're out there in the cemetery. And he says, alas, poor Yorick, I know him well. Uh, how long a man be dead ere he rot? Ah, three day or four, if he not rot before he die. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, some, people are, <laughs> some people are dead before they die. They just don't know it. You know, um, who was it who said I think it was a press secretary, Liz Carpenter, when someone they said Calvin Coolidge died. She said, how could they tell? Because he, he was the opposite. He was so, you know, kind of steady and even and mm-hmm. taciturn. But Northam's finished. But what a mess in Virginia. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Uh, it is a, such a mess for the Democrats. You got Northam and you got, well, he's in the Klan thing or he's in the blackface. No, he's not in either. But he was in Michael Jackson with a shoe pop. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? And then yeah. the um, the uh, lieutenant governor, uh, Justin Fairfax. Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And he's got a charge from a woman about sexual assault. But the Democrats are not treating that very much like the Brett Kavanaugh thing. At all. No. At all. Now, let me tell you about inside baseball. People, uh, listeners, these are our close listeners, our podcast listeners. They like to know how sausage is made. So I was writing this piece for uh, Saturday about Northam, mm-hmm. and I referred to Justin Fairfax uh, as this very attractive African-American uh, lieutenant governor. Mrs. Bennett read the piece, and she said, very attractive. I said, yeah. Why? I said, well, by everybody's account. She said, just put it in quotes. Just put it in quotes. <laughs> I said, well, everybody seems you now. She said, just put it in quotes. Just Mrs. Bennett was right, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, listen to your wife. Mm-hmm. That's all yeah. I got to say. There it is. And um, so there you go. But what a mess that is. As I wrote in the piece Saturday, the real reason they want him gone is because the abortion stuff. When well, he gave his radio interview and talked about, well, you know, the baby's born and you make the baby comfortable and then you decide whether the baby lives or dies. Yeah, that's that's they, unbelievable. They asked all the Democrat leaders what they thought of it. None of them were none was familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. So that that made him a marked man. They wanted to be rid of him. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be rid of that message. And the best way to be rid of that message, third trimester, or someone somewhat cleverly said fourth trimester, wow. uh, abortions, uh, was to be rid of the messenger. 
So the two pieces are up on the website, mm-hmm. right? And right. where do they go? Where, where possibly do you well, go to can, read these pieces? They can find you on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett, and they can follow you on Twitter, William J. Bennett, and uh, they can find the pieces there. So Facebook still exists despite all the criticism. <laughs> yes. All right, good. So the second piece I wrote, Democrat sharp left turn, went to number one on Real Clear Politics, delighted, very popular. And I said there were several things that accounted for this, uh, but the sharp left turn is shown by their position on the border. Well, we just talked about abortion, uh, Medicare for all, that is single payer insurance, get rid of private insurance companies and mm-hmm. private insurance plans, crazy. Uh, taxation rates, 70, 80, 90 percent. Other ideas, which, you know, Howard Schultz, the Starbucks guy, has said, man, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't need Republicans saying this. There's Howard Schultz, former Democrat. But what made them go so far left? And I, I, part of it is Trump derangement syndrome, but it's a little more subtle than that. During the Obama years, torpor set in. They were, you know, the mellifluous tones of Obama, the professorial, soothing language, you know, trying to try to hide the leftist, you know, impulses. But it kind of put people to sleep a little bit. Just, okay, put the liberals to sleep. Then he's gone and pow! Mm-hmm. splash of cold water. Couldn't have a greater contrast than Donald Trump. So it's not just Trump policy derangement syndrome. It's Trump syndrome. Just seeing him, hearing him, this directness, oh, sure. this brashness, yeah. mm-hmm. so on. So I said, we got a violation here of Newton's law. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. For every action of Trump's, there's an opposite and unequal reaction. He just wow. drives him nuts, drives him to the edge mm-hmm. of the cliff. You've heard me quote Flannery O'Connor. You have to, sometimes you have to push as hard as the agent pushes against you. Mm-hmm. Well, Trump pushes these guys, and they push back so much harder. And that's why they're on the left. And it's it's a bad place for them to be. I will uh, talk about this in a little bit, but uh, we're well, right after the State of the Union when we're talking about this clause. Mm-hmm. And the president announced socialism last night. There wasn't clear and unequivocal affirmation of that by the Democrats. Right, right. Now, they don't want to affirm basically anything he said, except they're great and they were elected and they applauded that. Mm -hmm. But I I saw Chuck Schumer this morning, which is the morning after the State of the Union. And what about socialism? He said, well, you know, we have different views in our party. And, you know, some people think more government. He did not unequivocally denounce socialism. Right, right. This party may not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. They're looking at polls, and I, as people who've listened listen to me over the years have no, I it's a favorite hobby horse of mine. Young people favor socialism over capitalism. Yep. Mm-hmm. They may think this is a winning issue. It's not. Not when people go to the voting booth. It is not. Yeah, what was interesting too was, uh, and I was really looking to see what Speaker Pelosi would do when he mentioned that and denounced socialism. It was kind of a half-hearted clap, like I'm kind of uneasy. Because, you know, I don't want to get on the bad side of those who, you know, are newly yeah. elected yeah. and far left. I mean, it's it's really interesting to see. I mean, and speaking of how far left some of the guys, it was interesting to me to see some of the things that the women, particularly uh, in white, didn't stand for, which I thought were some of their, you know, uh, fundamental positions or platforms like prison reform. There was no standing ovation for that when he talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Employment of women, prison, uh-huh. prison reform, um, lowest uh, you know, unemployment rates for yeah. African-Americans, uh, all sorts of things they didn't stand for. Basically, the only thing they stood for was themselves. <laughs> right. It's kind of embarrassing. Right. They even chanted USA. They even chanted USA. <laughs> Crazy. All right. Um, did I tell you about my lunch yesterday? Uh, no, we had not talked about your lunch. But although I saw a picture circulating with you. And who was in the picture? David Willisall. David Willisall. Mm-hmm. Listeners of uh, To Morning in America who are still with us 
will remember David. He was the screener. Uh, right. He started screening calls at 4.30 in the morning. Uh-huh. I think for the very ample sum of $15 an hour. Right. Which is, you know, way above the minimum wage. That's <laughs> where people are going now in these states, these right. blue states. But 15 an hour is not a huge amount to get up at 3 in the morning to First of all, to go to restaurants and get us pizza. When you, yeah, when you consider the fact that he and, would also pick up uh, half smokes. Yeah, Ben's chili bowl. Ben's chili bowl, and then come in and then screen calls. Right. And he's now the chief speechwriter for <laughs> for uh, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary of State. Yes, Mike Pompeo, with whom I had lunch yesterday. Exactly. I can't tell you anything about it right. except it was good. It was interesting. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about Mexico. Mm-hmm. The borders. We talked about the international drug trafficking. Talked about China. Talked about the Middle East. Uh, what I can tell you about is, I said, "What are you doing in Kansas? What is this hire of Les Miles as the Kansas football <laughs> coach? A team that tends to go one and nine or two and right. eleven? He said, "We don't know what it's about, but it's interesting, and we're glad to have him." They just want to get to six or seven wins. Yeah, uh, I remember listening to Secretary Pompeo when he, at his confirmation hearing when he talked about his dad and that his favorite food was the meatballs that his dad made. So we sat down to lunch. I was like in a small cup of tomato soup in the secretary's private dining room mm-hmm. and looked like a tuna sandwich with avocado or maybe it was turkey. Uh-huh. And I said, where are the meatballs? <laughs> you know, you know me. Right. He said, uh, next time. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we had a great conversation and we talked about our mutual friend, Bill Cower. you know. Oh, yeah. Him. Coach Cower. Yeah. yeah. And he's a, he's a friend of Cowers. I didn't know that. I'm a friend of Cowers. Anyway, it was great. Uh, can we put that picture up? Sure, absolutely. We can put it on Facebook and, put and it Twitter. Because yeah. I'm wearing my new suit. Oh, you are? Yeah, and I, it's important to get a picture of me in a new suit because it's probably about the only time you'll see me fully well-pressed. <laughs> After I wear it once. You, you just kind of, okay. Did yeah. I tell you that old joke? Do you know that old joke? No, about suit? no, no. Well, um, <clears throat> this guy has a terrible reputation for wearing bad suits and just not Mike Bam, but Pompeo. We're off that. Yeah, no, we're on something different. And so he uh, he decides that he uh, wants to get a suit made and, and look good. This is you advising me. You know, mm-hmm. you need to get a suit. You need to look good. So he uh, goes and gets a suit and um, he's he's walking out in the street and sees a friend. Francis, uh, that's uh, how you doing? He says, fine. He said, uh, is that a new suit? He said, yeah. He said, you need you need to Tuck it in a little bit. You need to take your hand and tuck it in a little. It's a little loose there around the, around the waist. Okay. okay. Sees another friend. Friend says, you need to, you know, pull up your cuffs a little bit. Another guy says, it's a little loose in the back. You need to bend over um, a little bit. And then the fourth guy says, you know, you need to stoop down low. Uh, otherwise, that those shoulders are just going to be standing out. Oh, he's doing all this, holding this, one hand holding the other hand, stoop down low, trying to do that. Two other friends pass by in the street, and they say, gosh, you know, look at Bill. I mean... He's all bent over. <laughs> looks looks terrible. Looks like he's sick and bent over and a uh-huh. mess. The other friend says, yeah, but look how well that suit fits. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, I get That's it. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a new suit. Looks fully great. I'm going out the door. I'm just spending this great. Just, you need to just, you know. Just tighten this yeah, up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, so. Well, you look great in it. I mean, well, how did it fit? Did it, look like it, fit? I, it seemed like it fit fine. Okay, right. So I probably shouldn't have had any lunch, you know, <laughs> given the situation. But it was great. Um, 
it was great to to be with him. And um, a couple other things I want to talk about on the light side, Super Bowl. Yeah. I liked it. I loved it. I, you tell me why you loved it. I love to see the defensive struggle. I like I like to see you know the strategy. Who was going to make a a play first? Which offense was going to make something happen? Who was going to make a mistake first? Uh, and of course, it wasn't Brady. It wasn't Belichick. I mean, that's and I love seeing. It. I mean, and, and you've got the Rams who offense has just been fireworks all season long. The question is, can Belichick come up with something to stop them? Will Brady in his 40s be able to yeah, uh, uh, handle the pressure from Donald and uh, and Sue? And he did. I mean, I, I like seeing the chess match. What was the score? 13 to 3. And the uh, oh. Rams had averaged, what, 30 points a game? Oh, yeah. Definitely in the mid to lower 30s. The ever. most amazing thing to me was that the best defense money can buy, that mm-hmm. line, and Dominican Sue, you mentioned. Oh, yeah. And Aaron Donald, uh-huh. the best defensive player in the league. And, you know, they did a good job against Brady. Name name the name five guys from the Patriots defense. Name three guys. Name That's two. That's it. Yep. They yep. No name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they put this thing together, and they totally choked off. Someone was saying what the, the Patriots starting lineup averages – Seventh draft pick, seventh wow. round. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Right, but they just get people who are nobody mm-hmm. and make them. It's the system. It's Apparently, the, they you got to give it to Belichick. Yeah. They say that's what he does. He picks players to perform certain jobs. I mean, and I'm trying to remember who it was. It was someone on ESPN who broke it down that one of the special team players who's a gunner, like they specifically yeah. were looking yeah. for a yeah. certain yeah. A kind gunner. of punt yeah. Yeah. coverage and kickoff coverage guy, and that's what this guy is good at. Nothing else, just that, and they use him for that purpose because they, they punt towards him, and just, it's just uh, they were just making plays the whole mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. Uh, and giving Goff quarterback for the Rams a lot of trouble covering their receivers like blankets I mean I, I, you got to give it to Belichick right Saban's the greatest college football coach ever Brady is the best quarterback ever and I'm yep. no particular lover of the Patriots yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you got to give it to Belichick uh, funny thing I was on Fox on uh, Monday and they showed a clip from Wise Guys, which is my show on Fox mm-hmm. Nation. And they said, well, our Wise Guys, and you're, you're a really wise guy. And I said, no, I'm not a wise guy. The panel's the Wise Guys. They said, oh, don't be modest. I said, oh, I'm not being modest. <laughs> I'm the Bill Belichick of Wise Guys. <laughs> I'm the one who drafts yeah. and coordinates. There you go. There you go. And says, you're the gunner and you're the this. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing. I liked the game, too. It was. I mean, I'm a defensive lineman right. by birth. I told you every <laughs> sport I played, they said I was a tackle. Right. When I went out for <laughs> no baseball, matter. they said tackle. <laughs> I tried to go out for the swimming team in mm-hmm. college. They said tackle. Tackle. So, you know, that was it. That's just my That's just my lot in life. What about this Julian Edelman? Seventh round draft pick, quarterback there, there you at go. Kent State. There you go. Seventh round. And he's the best receiver they have on the team. Quarterback, Not Kent State. Not all that fast. No. But no. just very quick. He knows how to get open. Gosh. Amazing. And then they got this guy, Hogan. And then they have a guy who looks like he's what he's supposed to be, a tight end, Gronkowski. Yeah. Yep. And that was the play that, you know, opened yeah. the game up. But, there you go. But Brady, I mean, my God, you know. Best quarterback ever. And they say, you can retire? No, I'm going to 45. Mm-hmm. Amazing to me. Uh, so uh, one other thing I want to talk about, a serious note, real serious note, which is not that Super Bowl isn't serious. I mean, the most, you know, most serious thing about Super Bowl. What would that be? 
it's the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. No more football till uh, we get a little break with spring games in college. But then, some new league, I guess away. I'll take a look at it. You know. But... Oh yeah, 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 yeah. When's Phil Steele out with his first? Ah, uh, you've got till late June or oh, July. Claude, what am I gonna do? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be calling you in the middle of the night. Yeah. Well, did you see Ricky Fowler won the waste management? Ricky opener. Fowler, you yeah. know, I, so. I did not. I mean, <laughs> we were and that was the that. one in uh, Scottsdale? Yes, yes. But my uh, son was there. Really? Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah, and Ricky Fowler is your guy yes. and, and your little boy's guy. And he won, and there was rejoicing in the Jennings home Sunday. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. Tell that story real quickly again about Ricky Fowler. Oh, yeah. So this is, uh, gosh, four years ago. And uh, at two years old, Manny's favorite golfer is Ricky Fowler. You know, he's, When Manny was two. Exactly. He's just saying, Ricky Fowler, Ricky Fowler. Yeah. That's just what he says. So I uh, take him to, uh, we were at Congressional Country Club because the Quicken Loans Tournament came here. And we take him to see him. His eye, at two years old, his eyes are just glued on Ricky Fowler. Just glued on him. And so Ricky puts out on eight. He's walking over to nine. And I get Manny in position to see him. And he just starts screaming, hi, Ricky Fowler. Hi, Ricky Fowler. And then Ricky walks past him. Hey, buddy. And then he stops and gives him the ball that he's playing with in mid-round. And I don't, usually they may give you a glove or a ball that they're not playing with. He gives him the ball he's playing with. The ball he's playing. That's a big so, deal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So everyone's cheering. You know, Manny's happy. And then maybe a minute after that, he goes to sleep. <laughs> he just passes out for yeah. all the excitement, I think. And then brings tell about bringing the ball home, and you know. so then we get home, and he's and and he's you know uh, uh, looking at the ball. It's kind of we're all kind of happy about it, and I'm reliving the story to Sierra. We're getting dinner ready, and I'm looking for the ball. Can't find it. He's playing with his golf clubs with the ball. I'm like, wait, this is not what – he didn't give you this for you to play with, and so we can't find it. Trying to figure out where it is. It's like it's, taking the Super Bowl and putting ex- soup in it. Ex- exactly. It's under the couch. And so I've hid it from him ever since. He has <laughs> not seen the ball ever since then. <laughs> That's great. Oh, good for Ricky Fowler, Ricky Fowler. One other thing I want to talk about. I was very interested to see – that one of the leading lawyers in America, Lynn Wood from Atlanta, he was the guy who defended the uh, Richard Jewell, the uh, the accused Atlanta bomber, but he wasn't the real bomber. Remember the uh, the Olympics? Mm-hmm. Um, very very famous, very well known lawyer is taking the case of the Covington Catholic High School kids. Right, and he is suing. A lot of the media, New York Times, CNN, uh, PBS. And a few people by name. I'm not sure PBS. A number of people by name Mm -hmm. uh, who slandered him, who defamed these kids. And um, let me just give give my view right away. Good for him. Good for them doing this. Now, I've heard tons of people from the legal community saying there's no case here. Uh, you know, damage to reputation. 15-year-old kid doesn't have a reputation. Well, whatever he had was destroyed, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Mm-hmm. In his hometown, his, his, even his own Catholic school turned on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and you know, you know what, what's the case and it's free press and all that. I just say go for it. And I say this, Claude, somebody, somebody needs to do something. This is a function of the new media which we take advantage of, you know, for advertising this show and presenting our views and so on. Boy, this is like fire. Mm -hmm. You can warm a house, but you can burn the house down with this new media. So this one interpretation got out about these kids, that they were making fun of this old uh, Indian Marine. Not true. And there's a 15-minute video which shows how badly these kids were defamed and slandered. And but, but I mean, the pile on was unbelievable mm-hmm. so that if you looked up this kid's name uh, on the Internet, you know, it'll be there forever. Right. 
So something has to be done. Come up with some novel theory, Mr. Wood. Come up with something, but make these people pay. Make these people be accountable. This rush to judgment on the, on these kids was horrible. You talk about reputation, and the argument is a 15-year-old doesn't have it. Yeah, well, suppose uh, you know one of those kids is up for uh, nomination. He's at a confirmation hearing. You think that they won't go back and pull that photo of this story? Yeah. That's reputation. I mean, you you know, this is what happens now. And I mean, yeah, that's a great point. He may not have a reputation at 15 that can be destroyed, but when he's 30, mm-hmm. he'll have one. I mean, and they can go backwards. Judge Kavanaugh had to pull out a That's calendar a and a yearbook and, and all this kind of stuff God, and, and try God. to pull, prove things. Point, and, and there was nothing ever um, great uh, brought up that, to great convict point. him of anything. Profoundly so. important point. Great point. Thank you. Thank you. I, I wish Linwood good luck on this case. Mm-hmm. And I hope he represents these boys. And I hope they bring these media people uh, to heal on this. Any mention of the black is, uh, Hebrew Israelites that were... Well, chanting those crazy sure. Things. I mean, in this 15-minute video, you see them very prominently. Yeah. Being... But, I mean, they're out of the news now, right? I mean, no one's really talking about that still, right? Right. It's, but they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they were the provocators. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Last thing, I just want to come back to something I mentioned earlier. Democratic Party better figure out where it stands on socialism. Mm-hmm. And they better be clear and unequivocal in their condemnation and rejection of socialism. That's all I'll say about that right now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the president hit it very hard last night, the State of the Union, and their response was, oh, yeah, maybe sort of. And then I heard Chuck Schumer this morning, and I've heard others saying, well, you know, it's complicated, blah, blah, blah. It better not be complicated. <laughs> so it better be straightforward on this one. <laughs> By the way, when I was coming out of the State Department, I ran into an old, old friend. You'll remember him from radio. We used to interview him, Elliot Abrams. Yeah, yeah. And he was Assistant Secretary of State. We used to talk to him. You know what he is now? What's that? Special Envoy on Venezuela. Oh, okay. Uh, you right. talk. I said, Elliot, I gave him a big hug. I said, Elliot, you get the tough jobs, man. Mm-hmm. You really get the tough jobs. Wow. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Time to turn our focus to the war on terror. It's an existential threat to America. Joining us now, Tom Jocelyn, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, senior editor at the Long War Journal. Tom, thank you for your time. Bill, how you doing? Good. Tom, uh, I want to talk about State of the Union, some of the things the president said in regard to uh, terrorists. But let's let's step back, take a look at the, the big picture. The global war against Islamist terrorism, which is what I found to be my preferred way to talk about it five, six, eight years ago. I think you helped and guided on that. How are we doing? I guess, how are we, meaning U.S. or civilization? Well, I, I think it's sort of a mixed bag. You know, the the issue is that, of course, on the, on the positive side of the ledger, the U.S. and its allies have prevented sort of another catastrophic attack in the West, which is, you know, a pretty big deal. There, there certainly have been resources devoted to trying to hit us again for the years, and it's important to stop them from doing that in the West, whether it be Europe or the U.S. It's been some time since we've had sort of a mass casualty attack. And certainly these organizations have taken a number of blows, and we're talking about primarily here both ISIS or the Islamic State and al-Qaeda. They've definitely both suffered significant blows. But on the other side of the ledger, the cost side or sort of the, the downsides of this, the problem is that the jihadist threat has spread out and is now covering a much uh, more uh, wider land area 
a vast land area from everywhere from West Africa to Southeast Asia. There are different jihadist insurgencies raging. And it's important to put in context what this is all about. You know, ISIS sort of grabbed everybody's attention in 2014 by declaring itself a caliphate across a large portion of Iraq and Syria. They have now lost most of the territory that they once controlled. Um, but that wasn't the only caliphate building er uh, effort that's going on throughout jihadism. You know, the ISIS effort to build a caliphate actually grew out of this al-Qaeda plan to build a caliphate in these different areas. And so what you have are these different jihadist insurgencies raging in these different in these different areas. They're, the goal of all of them is to try and build in the long term Islamic emirates or states and then link them up in their caliphate dream so that they basically can declare that the caliphate is truly resurrected once again. The and while – ISIS has lost most of its territory in Iraq and Syria. That caliphate-building dream still exists and is still alive, and it's still highly problematic. All right. That's a great uh, opening uh, general statement. What's the right uh, metaphor here for this? I remember uh, as a kid stepping on a spider once, and it was a pregnant female, and it ended up scattering little spiders all over the yard. Um, is this partly this spread partly a function of smashing down on the central caliphate effort? No, it, what's, it's interesting about how this actually works. So this, the spreading out of this, the, the, the sort of uh, increasing their territorial ambitions really started even before the rise of ISIS. Um, you know, what ISIS and its predecessor, al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Islamic State of Iraq, they were sort of headquartered in Iraq, of course, as the name gives, and then they expanded into Syria. But Al-Qaeda had already expanded in areas like Yemen and Somalia and West Africa, North Africa, um, you know, and, and Al-Qaeda still maintains a presence in all those areas, as does the Islamic State. What the Islamic State did was they tried to poach from the existing Al-Qaeda groups to expand their sort of caliphate provinces. So what they have are two competing Sunni jihadist groups or organizations. They're both trying to build these Islamic emirates or states in these various areas. And in most of the areas, this is the thing that surprises most people when I say this, but in most of these areas outside of Iraq and Syria, al-Qaeda actually remains stronger than the Islamic State. And so a lot of the war fighting that's going on right now is to try and push back or stop al-Qaeda from building its Islamic emirates in places like Somalia, for example. You notice that, Bill, you'll see that there are these regular U.S. airstrikes in Somalia. What is that all about? Well, what that is is it's trying to bolster the fledgling federal government in Somalia to prevent that from being overthrown by the al-Qaeda affiliate or a branch in East Africa, which is trying to build an Islamic emirate there. So you have you have this war fighting is still ongoing in, in several different areas. Okay, uh, good. That's a start on uh, an answer to my next question. I want to hold discussion of Syria and Afghanistan for a bit, but um, are we, you mentioned uh, Somalia and, and strikes by us, are we addressing, uh, taking your word, that there, there's a spread and it's not just Syria, it's not just Afghanistan, it's not just Middle East, but lots of different places. Are we addressing that spread um, in the way that we should be? Well, I think this this gets down to the fundamental challenge here. I mean, a lot of what President Trump's, uh, you know, his administration is about, and a lot of the rhetoric you see in support of him, is sort of addressing the overreactions or the, you know, sort of zealous sort of foreign policy that was pursued in the past and advocated in the past by sort of neoconservatives, neoconservatives and sort of what I call the naive interventionist crowd. The problem that I have is, well, I'm certainly not in that camp. The problem is that you can go too far in the other direction. And too much of the rhetoric I saw, I think I see coming out of these quarters now in reaction to that from Trump and others 
um, it, it seems to go too far in the other direction. So, for example, you know, yesterday in the State of Union speech, he addressed this or framed this as sort of he wants to put an end to these endless wars. Yeah. Well, th- there's several problems with that, Bill. First of all, he's talking about Afghanistan and Syria. The total troop presence in Afghanistan and Syria when he starts you know, when he started with this rhetoric was less than 20,000 Americans. Okay, so that's not exactly a Vietnam-sized deployment, nor is it a World War II-sized deployment. You're talking about less than 20,000 official American boots on the ground. It doesn't include, of course, intelligence agencies and that sort of thing. But in terms of actual soldiers and troops, less than 20,000 in the two theaters. In 2018, less than two dozen Americans died in in this fighting. Now, of course, we should honor their sacrifice and who these men and women were and are. Um, But the vast majority of the casualties in this war fighting are being suffered by our allies or our partners, whether it be Kurds in Syria or Afghans in Afghanistan. This is not something where we're suffering, fortunately right now, we're not suffering Vietnam-level casualties, uh, at least in terms of deaths. Of course, you have others that are wounded and that sort of thing. All that's important. But the point is, overall, our allies or partners are suffering most of the casualties. And this endless wars rhetoric, it doesn't say anything about our enemies or what they're doing. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. you know, the, pro- the problem is that, um, well, ISIS isn't totally defeated. They're still fighting. Al Qaeda is still fighting. The Taliban's still fighting. You can try and wish this away and say, well, you know, we can just end this and, and go home. But the problem is that they're still active in the battlefield. Okay. And so the, the point is you have to figure out and try and optimize your resources, your assets to minimize what, the damage they can do. And I don't, I don't think we're having the right conversation in that regard right now. All right. I, I want you to tell us what that conversation ought to, ought to sound like. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard some interesting and, and kind of disturbing things lately. Um, you know, I, I guess you could identify me with that sort of neoconservative hawk thing from years back, though. I've shifted more to a, more to a Trumpian view here lately. But, but you know, I heard this morning on, on TV, on, on Fox, in fact, uh, and I'm a loyalist to Fox, a contributor to Fox, but someone said, look, let's remember that, you know, with these soldiers uh, overseas, the, the, the point is to get them home. No, that's not the point of being a soldier, right? I mean, yes, you get home eventually, but the point of being a soldier is to engage as a soldier, to fight. So, um, you know, and, well, and you know I- to, put, to put it another way, Bill, to, to, to buttress that point. So what I think these people are really saying is they don't want to fight the Islamic State or yeah, the okay, leadership of that okay, organization okay. or kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or his lieutenants and, and, and keep fighting him. Okay, you can make that argument. I mean, that means they don't want to fight Al Qaeda, and they don't want to, you know, put Al Qaeda on its back heel. They don't want to fight the Taliban. That's actually there's a very large crowd that doesn't want to fight the Taliban, actually, which is a, which is mistaken, and we can get into that. I want but to get into that. If, if your point if your point is that you just want to come home, well, that's an easy thing to execute. The point is it doesn't say anything about our enemies or what they're doing. Okay. And the idea that you don't want to fight them, which is what that calculation really means. If you just say, look, the point yeah, is just right. to get home. Well. Anybody can execute that. The point is, you know, should we be fighting ISIS? Should we be fighting Al Qaeda? Yeah. I think we should. I think you think we should. So what does that actually mean? And that's the that's a more meaningful conversation, a more uh, interesting discussion to have. And I don't claim to have all the answers, but at least get the framing right. You know, this idea right. that you're just going to bring yeah. everybody home just seems sort of, uh, you know, right. naive to me. Aren't I right, too, that in general, uh, based on studies and history, that, that the American people will support – uh, these kind of efforts, 
uh, if they think they're sound and if they think we're about winning them. Is that fair as a generalization? I think that's fair as a generalization. I mean, I think even if you look at the polling, for example, that just recently came out on the war effort, even Afghanistan, where you know, I think a, a, a plurality of Americans, if I'm right, I have to remember this, if, if, if I'm getting this right, memory serves me, the plurality of Americans sort of supported um, getting out of Afghanistan, but it was close. And even yeah. after all these yeah. years, even after all these years of, of, you know, really, I would say absentee political leadership, where nobody's been actually explaining what the U.S. is doing or why it's doing it in Afghanistan, for it to be close after all that time, I thought was kind of striking to me. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I agree. Not that, I agree. Not, you know, and, and, and by the way, Bill, I'm not a full-throated defender of the U.S. military effort in Afghanistan. You know, <laughs> we have many we have many arguments at Long War Journal, which is the uh, counterterrorism publication I help run, with the military leadership, and they they have a lot they don't like about right. us right now because we we call them out all the time. But the point is, is that there, you know, in Afghanistan, the idea that we're going to capitulate to the Taliban, which is where this is going. Um, strikes me as a bad idea and is something that really, really sort of noxious after all these years. I want to get into that in a second. Let's go to Syria first. Um, have we, you've heard the president's claims, you know, we've eliminated, we've eliminated ISIS, uh, basically. We haven't fully, right? But we've done a pretty good job, correct? Or how do you, how do you describe it? I mean, the U.S. has um, taken away most of ISIS's territory. It has damaged their, uh, the group's capacity for and I want to say damaged, not eliminated, the group's capacity for executing um, sort of high-profile attacks in the West, although there's always a threat that that could happen at any time. Um, you know, what I would say is, on the flip side, you know, just this week, there was this Inspector General's report came out uh, from, from the DOD that explained that much, which is consistent with our view, so that's why I'll cite it, that, it, you know, basically we think it's right, that much of the Islamic State's leadership remains intact. Um, they still have thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. They're still fighting for um, ground. And, you know, late last year, they, they rebounded pretty quickly once the once we took our foot off the gas pedal, once our partners stopped taking the fight to them in eastern Syria, they rebounded and captured territory very quickly. So this is the type of thing where if we just suddenly withdraw from Syria, and again, this is a minimal deployment bill. This is just over 2,000 um, American troops. Yeah. We recently suffered several casualties in Mambij, um, but you know, throughout 2018, I don't think any Americans died in Syria in 2018, or if any did, it was a, a very small number. This is again not exactly a Vietnam-style war effort here, you know. Right. Um, and yet, a lot of the rhetoric addresses it, addresses it as if it is, you know, which is what I find to be sort of um, troubling. President's comment he says, well, "Look, you know, if it, if they resurged, if they grew, we could go back in." That is easier said than done, because the problem the problem is that. You need to have some sort of on-the-ground footprint to figure out where they are, what they're doing, what the key nodes are that need to be taken sure. out. I mean, just think about it this way. Even with this with this minimal footprint we've had and with this effort, this large bombing campaign, which has been more than minimal, this bombing campaign that we've had for several years now, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, remains alive. You know, yep, yep. that tells you that's a, that's a very striking observation because it tells you that there are holes in our intelligence, holes in our understanding of the enemy. The fact that he's still alive after all this time, and it's been a massive bombing campaign really since 2014 to okay. try and take out Islamic State's leadership and other key sort of facilitators and that sort of thing. It tells you that you know even with our footprint in these in Iraq and Syria, we're not seeing the whole picture. We're not able to get them all. If uh you leave. I think it reduces your ability to take out the key assets on their side. 
I got three more questions for you, and this is really great stuff, Tom Jocelyn. Thanks very much. You mentioned uh, debates you have along more journal with some of the generals. Could we insert here? Can you tell us anything? Where does Mattis and Mattis's resignation fit into what we're talking about here, or or were his reasons not related to what we're talking about? You know, I was not as big a fan of Mattis as a lot of other people were and are. Um, I didn't see someone who had some great strategic mind who was really trying to figure out how to get it right. I wasn't really sure what he was all about, to be honest with you, in terms of in terms of what he was doing here. And we haven't gotten into it yet, but some of what he said on Afghanistan I found to be just utterly clueless. So uh, when compared to the actual facts, so okay. I'm not really sure right. what he what he was trying to accomplish. I, I think you know underneath him we've had debates and arguments with. U.S. military commanders who they have offered the American people assessments of the enemy through the years that have been clearly flawed, and they have not um, been forthcoming about those flaws, and they've not corrected it, and that's where we hold them to account. All right. That's fine. Uh, that was an aggression. Let's go now to uh, to Afghanistan. Um, a guy I used to interview a lot, Ryan Crocker, whom I, I like. I don't know what you think of him. He said this would be terrible. Uh, to have a deal with the Taliban. This would be surrender. And these negotiations with the Taliban are a very bad idea. Well, you know, keep in mind when it comes to negotiations with the Taliban, I think there's a lot of ignorance here on this. And there are a few points I'd like to make on, on that. The first is the U.S. government desperately pursued talks on the Obama administration with the Taliban from 2009 to 2013. And although there's been some attempts at revisionism of late at that, the U.S. was absolutely pursuing peace talks with the Taliban during that time. And how did those talks end? Well, they ended in a fiasco, Bill. The Taliban out-negotiated our people from the State Department and the White House and National Security Council and others. And during that time, uh, the U.S. adopted a, a radical revisionism of the Taliban. So even as President Obama was ordering American service members into the field in Afghanistan to go fight primarily the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies in the field, the excuse U.S. Me, here remind, at home— Excuse me. Remind me. Am I right? Don't I remember Obama saying we were fighting the wrong war in Iraq? We needed to be fighting it in Afghanistan? Wasn't that yeah? This is okay. this is part of the absolute um, total confusion of our political leadership on all this, and just and really poor leadership uh, actually. I mean, so in December 2009, President Obama announces a surge of forces into Afghanistan, saying we have to win this war. This is the war that needs to be won. He didn't mean it, and he he also put an expiration date on the surge of forces of 18 months in Afghanistan, and said they're going to start coming home in 18 months anyway. So this was sort of theater for him, where he wanted to basically argue that we need to get out of Iraq because we need to put the resources in Afghanistan. Well, what, we saw how getting out of Iraq ended. It ended with the rise of ISIS. So the last American forces leave in December 2011. Anybody who wants to argue that ISIS wasn't aided in the, its rise because of that is absolutely wrong. It, it's crystal clear that U.S. leaving Iraq, which was – sort of done as a, you know, remember what President Obama and others were saying at the time. They were arguing as if their decisions in 2009, 10, and 11 were a correction to what happened in 2003. You can't play the game that way. It doesn't work that way. You know, you have to, to face the enemy that you're given. You can't undo the decision to invade Iraq, and yet that's how they pretended they were, what they were doing in 2009, 2010, 2011. So we leave Iraq, ISIS surges and, and mushrooms into this global caliphate organization. Well, 
what ends up happening is in Afghanistan, sort of, which was supposedly the good war in comparison to the bad war in Iraq, basically Obama didn't really want to try and win that war either. It was sort of this, this, this put on this surge in Afghanistan. We were going to break the Taliban's momentum. That didn't really happen. You know, sort of all they did was sort of limit the Taliban's momentum. They didn't basically keep making gains at that point in time. But as soon as we put the put, the, put off the pedal there, they started roaring back as well. Well, during this period, concurrently, as there's the surge in Afghanistan, the U.S. tries to negotiate with the Taliban and come to a political solution there. This ends in a fiasco. The Taliban extracts all sorts of concessions from us. Uh, we get nothing in return. You remember, Bill, the, the, the absolutely disgraceful swap for Bo Bergdahl for the yes. That came out of these talks. That was part yeah, of what yeah, the Taliban yeah. extracted out of these talks. This is what they've been doing all along. They know we're desperate to leave, and they just are trying to extract these concessions. Well, unfortunately, last night, I think uh, President Trump put a little too much emphasis and onus on these talks and, and acted as if um, they were had a better chance of success than they really do. Any sort of realistic appraisal of these talks would say you're going to expect something similar to what we got the last time. And unfortunately, what's happening is as these talks move forward, the Taliban refuses to talk to the Afghan government. That's our ally. And so what's happened is the U.S. and uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, who's leading the U.S. effort, we pushed forward with the talks with the Taliban during this time anyway. And we have basically helped them undermine the Afghan government's legitimacy because they said, we're not going to talk to the Afghan government. We said, OK, we'll talk to you anyway. And then they go off to Moscow and elsewhere, the Taliban does, and they make a big show of their efforts in undermining our case and our Afghan, the Afghan government's case. In addition, um, the, the Taliban already knows that we're eager to leave, and the U.S. chased them for, chased them for these talks. So this is all taking yeah. place – on the Taliban's terms, you know, which is not a good position for any negotiator to be in, you know. Um, but, but I'll just say this, and we can get to, more into this bill, but here's the thing I would say for your list, for you and your listeners that I'm most concerned about. There is now this credulity by Khalid and others when it comes to the Taliban's utterances on distancing itself from international terrorism. Um, this is the thing I will stand on the most, because this is utter rubbish and nonsense. The idea that the Taliban is going to act as some sort of counterterrorism block in Afghanistan and prevent Afghanistan from being used by international terrorist organizations in the future is just utter nonsense. And i got to say that if the U.S. diplomats this time around are going to choose to believe this, then they're going to choose to believe a lie that has been a lie for over 20 years. And it's been a demonstrable lie for over 20 years. And nobody in America, the U.S. diplomacy has agreed to this lie to date. But if now we're going to agree to it, then that's all it is, is accepting something that's demonstrably untrue. But what is the risk, though? Uh, just to push back a little bit, the critics, sure. the critics say, Tom, well, you know, uh, the reason we shouldn't do this uh, is because there are a lot of the critics, not all. Uh, it's because, you know, uh, we leave Afghanistan. That's where the, you know, 9-11 plot was launched. That's where, you know, a lot of this disastrous stuff uh, was uh, planned and executed from. Uh, they'll they'll do it again. Is that too glib or is that is that is that an honest and true read, do you think? Well, it's, it's probably an oversimplification of much more complicated issues. If you want to just get out of Afghanistan, okay, argue to get out of Afghanistan. Don't provide political legitimacy to the Taliban, and don't and don't bless the Taliban, okay. and pretend that their lies about international terrorism are true, which is what these and, and certainly don't let them undermine the Afghan government on the way out. And that is what these talks 
we're at risk of doing. Um, these talks risk basically handing the Taliban a political victory to compound their military victories in the battlefield. And that doesn't make any sense at all. If you just want to get out of Afghanistan, well, do that. Cut some sort of deal with the Afghan government, who's been your ally, although it's been a problematic ally. But cut some sort of deal with them and get out. Don't do this whole theater where you're going to actually endorse the Taliban and pretend like they're a legitimate actor. The Taliban and al-Qaeda have been fighting to resurrect their Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. These talks have now essentially endorsed or blessed the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan as the rightful ruler of Afghanistan or much of it. That is a big problem because for the jihadis, that is a huge win. That is something that absolutely emboldens their movement. And when we talk about al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, the number one story that people have missed is that al-Qaeda has invested most of its resources in Afghanistan to resurrecting the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And I'll just put down this marker. I would be willing to bet a very large amount of money that the Taliban will never fully renounce al-Qaeda. Right. Ever. And, and the idea that, that they were going to act as some buffer against international terrorists, which is what Khalid and others have sort of intimated, I think is really foolish. All right. You broadened and deepened our grasp and understanding of this. Let me just close with this. In this whole – back to the 30,000-foot perspective – in this whole picture of the global war against Islamist terrorism, what's the p- piece or place or part that worries you the most? Uh, you know, to me, you know, it's not any one tactical thing. It's not any one, you know, potential terrorist plot or anything like that that worries most. What worries me the most is that this many years after 9-11, we are still fundamentally ignorant in the policymaking level of our enemies and how they function. And, you know, when we talk about Afghanistan, what worries me the most is that this, this radical Taliban revisionism um, has taken hold. And it's not based and rooted in any sort of deep factual understanding of the Taliban and its decades-long alliance with al-Qaeda. It's based on just pure wishful thinking fantasy and, in some cases, anti-Americanism. And revisionism the people, is these are people you can deal with, right? Yeah, they're essentially just misunderstood insurgents who just want us out. And if we leave them alone, um, you know, there's no problem. That we're basically – what you see from some of the Taliban apologists, and these are people who are, are numerous, uh, which is quite disturbing in and of itself – is this whole idea that, you know, um, they basically aren't truly in bed with al-Qaeda. They aren't truly allied with al-Qaeda. They just sort of are, are in this situation because we're there. And if we get out, we're the ones that are at fault. And if we get out, then everything will be fine. That is just utter rubbish, okay, utter rubbish. And, and, you know, one of the things we've done at Long War Journal is document, you know, provide just reams of data and evidence to show how that's wrong. And it still has taken hold in the U.S. government, and that worries me. It's that type of thing, that fundamental ignorance of our enemies that worries me. All right. Uh, there, there's this tendency in American life. I mean, I, I can tell you from an entirely different issue, uh, you know, the drug stuff, which, you know, I deal with, which is, that's, you know, we push down hard. And then things are seem to settle down, and so we kind of relax. And then we go, oh, whoa, whoa. And then we got to push down hard again. There is this American tendency to sort of drift and say, all right, that crisis is over, uh, and, 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 and not really grasp that it's ongoing and you need the ongoing pressure. I, I don't know if that analogy works or not, but that's that's been the history of uh, dealing with uh, drugs in this country, and um, I, I, I see some similarities. Tom, thank you very, very much. Great stuff. Oh, really thank you for having me, Bill. We appreciate all the work you guys do. Thank you. Bye-bye. No, thank you, Bill. Bye. Claude, this is uh, this is a very uh, tough, you know, hard-bitten analysis. This is the real world. This is all this guy does. I think he knows more about uh, terrorism and Islamist terrorism. He knows all the names. 
you know, we've heard him on before and you've heard him just rattle off all the names, all these, all these leaders, all these terrorist leaders. And he's issuing caution and caveat and, hey, don't make naive mistakes. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a, he's, he's, he's reciting and repeating a cautionary tale to us. And, you know, it was interesting. I heard Mitch McConnell, not normally a sage on, you know, on these issues. He's a great political sage, but, you know, we're saying, well, we've been there so, questioners said we've been there so long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're still in Germany, you know. Right. We still have a presence in Germany. Uh, You know, we're we're, we're all over the world. We're in, uh, you know, at the the border in North and South Korea. Mm -hmm. These are all much older conflicts. Correct. And, uh, you know, we keep a presence. So uh, always useful, I think, to talk to Tom. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, it's time to welcome Byron York to the show. He's a columnist at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, thanks for joining us again on the show. So it's the morning after the State of the Union. I really just have one lingering question about it, but what's your takeaway? I thought it was a very good speech. I thought he did delivered it very well. I thought his timing was good. Delivery, delivery, delivery. You know, that's what they say about yeah, the speech. Yeah. Well, I did too, actually. Um, I mean, I thought there were there were two contexts to view it in. One context is the uh, this continuing uh, standoff over the border and specifically the border barrier um, and the prospect that if an agreement is not reached, you could have another government shutdown on February 15th. So, the State of the Union was Trump's best case, best opportunity to make his best case for uh, for his position in that. But and he did that. But the speech was really a lot bigger than that. And I, I do think that if um, if Trump were going to deliver a speech that was titled "Here's Why I Should Be Reelected in 2020." Yeah, this would pretty much be that. That's speech. correct. That's correct. And uh, and I thought it was actually quite effective. Of course, they're always too long. Fine. But uh, it was a very strong speech. Yeah, I, it really was. And I think the ticking off of the achievements, I've never seen the gallery used so extensively and well. Yeah. And uh, the ticking off achievements, I think, was very good. I noted this morning in the polls the morning after, the, you know, you can't attach too much, but very strong reviews from the, quote, moderates or independents. Yeah, I, you know, we can't, you can't depend on these yep, quickie yep, polls. Yep, that they yep. do. Um, but the quickie polls showed at least one thing that's probably true, which is, first of all, high Republican approval, and second, probably high independent approval. Yeah. And that's pretty good uh, for the president. And it was really a restatement of a lot of his positions from 2016, except he had an accomplishment list to go along with it. And That's I, right. I thought the strongest single part of the speech, there was a bunch of stuff that was that was solid, uh, was fairly near the top after he's done his Choose Greatness yeah. introduction. And he just goes through the economic accomplishments yeah. Yeah. of his time yeah. in office. Yeah. And Nancy no, no Pelosi is sitting back there no and doesn't quite know what to do when he's talking about economic growth uh, job creation, low unemployment, uh, particularly low employment in uh, minority uh, communities, deregulation. Uh, he's just going and going through all of this stuff, and the news is really very good. And um, you know, Democrats, well, the opposition party, you know, has trouble 
recognizing, yeah, yeah, good, uh, acknowledging good. the accomplishments. Here's what I take. Opposition. Here's my question. Um, and this is partly function of you know, you write all the time. I write occasionally. But I wrote a piece for Fox News on Sunday and said the Democrats sharp left turn. And I mentioned several things that are, you know, why are they going so far left? And I tried to come up with reasons for it. But one thing that came out last night that was very smart for them to put in the president's speech was this firm and unequivocal declaration against socialism. And yeah. am I right to detect some ambivalence about that on well, the Democrat I, I side? You, I, I, I saw I Schumer saw. this morning. I saw Schumer this morning. He was asked about it on Morning Joe. And he equivocated. Well, we, I mean, look, the most celebrated, the superstar of the uh, new Democratic class, AOC, as we call Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, basically uh, has embraced socialism. Yeah. Obviously, Bernie Sanders, yeah. the guy who, who gave the Democratic nominee a real run for her money in the last presidential election, is also uh, a socialist. So Trump did this in a very deft way. Uh, he talked about how socialism had ruined um, Venezuela. And then he said, you know, and there are alarming signs of people wanting it here. And we should never, ever be a socialist nation. And it was one of these tests for Democrats. Uh, here's a choice. You can either applaud and stand up or you can sit down, sit on your hands. And what are you going to do? And I saw a number of Republican members afterwards, and they were all, they were delighted with what had happened yes. in socialism, yes. course, which yes. is that basically a large number. First of all, some Democrats did applaud, and you know clearly uh, stood with the president against socialism, but many did not. And Republicans really liked that, and I think they could probably see that in uh, some ads against some of their opponents maybe uh, next year. So it was it was a very sort of clever thing the the president did there by imposing this choice. He he basically yeah. came up with a socialism test, and a lot of Democrats failed it live on national television. And I think Schumer failed it this morning on Morning Joe, which I watched for a couple of minutes. Which after a night to think about it, which is kind of right. But they should be pressed on this because if they, it seems to me you cannot. I don't care what the polls of millennials say, Byron. You cannot be equivocal, ambivalent about socialism as a party in your platform or your, you know, your public pronouncements and hope to win an well, election here. I don't think. I don't think. Well, this is the fight the Democratic Party is going to have. Um, and, wow. you know, we, you know, wow. we, I, I read an article on Politico the other day, and it was it was basically about the uh, the uh, effort uh, by Ocasio Cortez and her um, and her uh, allies to to root out counter revolutionaries in inside the Democratic Party. Uh, but the problem is is that the uh, the revolutionary vanguard inside the Democratic Party is not all that big. There's a there's a lot of them who are basically centrists in the sense that they believe in American capitalism. Um, but you have these the ones, especially the ones who are getting the most attention. Who are really obviously ambivalent about American but, capitalism, but, and that's something that's got to come out in the next election. Not just the ones getting attention. My former student Chuck Schumer, you know about that, right? I told you about that. Yes. You? Yeah. Well, Schumer, who at least was my student for a review of his paper at Harvard, was uh, check out the quote. 
uh, I mean, his answer, and I think Joe, Joe was trying to do him a favor. Now, look, I mean, socialism, you guys are not for that, right? He said, well, you know, there's a debate going on about the role of government and, you know, how much government. And, uh, certainly we're a capitalist country, but, you know, capitalism, you know, has its excesses and needs to, you know, work. It was not affirmed. We're absolutely not socialists. Now, we believe two cheers for capitalism or, you know, something along those yeah. lines. It was it was really I, knocked me out of my chair how, how foggy it was. That is interesting. I'll have to go. Yeah, uh, I'll yeah. have to go look at this uh, morning Joe thing. It was um, uh, before my coffee. It was before my morning Joe. So I, you know, I may have heard it wrong. So, but um, no, I think the president did himself some good last night. And um, yeah, I, he well, also. It's a great point um, about re-election. I think speech. maybe John Podorich said this. Is, I mean, this is the, the first time he's managed to kind of change the dynamic since actually December eighth, which I think was. Uh, or maybe it was December 11th, uh, that, I think the 11th, the day that he had the Oval Office meeting with Schumer and Pelosi and took credit for uh, any shutdown. Right. That's and right. Uh, he's really been fighting okay. fighting against that, his own self-created problems. And the last night, he, he really seemed to have bust out of it finally. Last question for you. Are we inching or micro-inching, crawling our way toward a deal before the 15th? interesting. I, the, my, the latest piece I published on this, basically, a Republican member who's quite close to all this told me, said, you know, this is not a negotiation between Republicans and Democrats. It is a negotiation between uh, uh, rank-and-file Democrats and Nancy Pelosi. Can they talk her down from her this maximalist position of zero? Nothing, nothing yeah. for a barrier. Uh, because a lot of Democrats are fine. With that. They know there's a hypocrisy issue because yeah. they've some of them have actually voted for a barrier in the past. And they also know just generally that a barrier would be part of this larger package of border security that Trump is offering, which is, you know, more Border Patrol uh, agents, more immigration uh, judges, humanitarian aid, more technology to detect drugs at ports of entry. All of that stuff is kind of a package for border security, and it it obviously includes a barrier. The unreasonable uh, position is that all of that's really good, except you cannot have a barrier because it's immoral. Um, so, that, you know, Pelosi has kind of put herself in a crazy position, uh, but she won the last time with that crazy position. So, you know, people who win aren't, aren't usually inclined to start making concessions uh, immediately. So we'll see. You know what I guess? Bet? More likely yes, more likely no? <laughs> no. Uh, I, I don't think there'll be another shutdown. Okay. I don't either. I don't either. Okay. Byron, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. So that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. Right. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, you can uh, feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. If you do email the show, where, where do they email? Where do they email? Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up to you later.